afternoon. It's the fourth Friday of the month, and that means it's time for Literary Ashland. I'm Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And we are going to talk a little bit about writing in general, but first, Ed has a number of announcements. Yeah, there are a few, a few announcements going up tomorrow um, at our, our friends at Rebel Heart Books in Jacksonville are hosting a local author's fair for the 29th of February. Hopefully they'll um, not wait four years to do it again. Um, but it's from noon to two. They're featuring Diana Kugel, Ken Gregg, Kristen Lore Weber, John Sack, Gwen Overland, Molly Tinsley, Jim Falkenstein, Irv Loveliner, and Gates McKibben. And then from three to five, they have a second wave um, featuring Sue DeMarinis. Michael Neiman will be there. Beth, mm. Becca Seth, Paul Fadig. Kate Ingram, Lori Hendrickson, Claire Krulikowski, Casey Lane, Vanessa Newman, and Thor Polson. Um, so they'll um, all have tables, and uh, it should be uh, quite an exciting event. So, um, so Rebel Heart Books tomorrow, February 29th. Um, and they're right downtown uh, Jacksonville. And um, the Willamette Writers is they're posting their events again the first Saturday of each month. So the beginning of uh, March seventh, they'll have their ten to twelve um, morning session, and then um, another event in the afternoon. And their special guest is New York Times best-selling author Maisie Yates, who lives here in rural Oregon, um, where she writes uh, romances. So she's going to talk about. Um, how to get your readers hooked. Uh, I also, uh, a quick shout out for our friend um, Chelsea Rose, who's just published her book on uh, the Chinese archaeology. So mm -hmm. it's called The Chinese Diaspora, um, and it's just out, I believe. All right. Excellent. So some great events coming up. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, ordinarily, we have guests in the studio, local authors, publishers, and other kinds of folks that are, in generally speaking, in the field of writing, but we don't have a guest for today, which means you have to put up with us. That's right. <laughs> um, but... Um, but we've got stuff to say. we got stuff to say. First of all, uh, both of us have books coming out in the near future. Why don't you tell all the, the listeners about yours, Ed? Sure. I've got a, a book coming out called Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels Insulting the President from Washington to Trump. Um, it's being released on April 1st, ironically. Um, <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's a history of... How people have insulted presidents um, since the beginning of the nation, and how presidents have uh, pushed back. Uh, and there's also a, a lot of interesting stuff there about word. I think it's interesting anyway about word history of certain insults and other terms, um, and some interesting observations on freedom of the press. So I'll be actually at Bloomsbury next month, or sorry, at the Friends of the Hannon Library 
on April 9th and then at Bloomsbury on May 7th. Okay, excellent. So let's just stick with that for a little bit because you, you have a, you, you're a linguist by training and you're interested in language. And uh, uh, I think we can say that probably for most writers, but I think your interest in language goes deeper in just putting good words on the page. Yeah, I'm a, one of the things I'm interested in is the history of words. So it's always interesting to see what what sorts of terms have been out there and have been popular in the past. So, for example, um, John Adams called Thomas Jefferson a dastardly poltroon. And I had to look up what a poltroon was. It wasn't uh, part of my active vocabulary. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a coward. Um, it's so he a called coward. him a, a coward. What's the origin of that word? I, I'm not sure what, exactly where that one comes from. It sounds a dastardly poltroon. They both sound um, you know, sort of vaguely nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found out that um, um, Warren Harding, um, you know, he had this sort of um, row of, second-rate Republican presidents in the early, um, in the 1920s, um, from Harding to Coolidge to Hoover. Um, and they had some rivalries among them. So um, Harding was the first one. He died in office of a heart attack. Um, there was even a rumor that his wife had poisoned him to avoid a scandal. Um, but... Uh, we always think that our current politics are so unique and scandalous. I, I know, right? it's amazing. And, and, and you look in the history and says, hey, it's been there before, right? But, so anyways, go. But so Harding, and, um, Her, um, Herbert Hoover was sort of the boy wonder of the era, right? Uh, and uh, Harding didn't particularly care for him, even though he was his Secretary of Commerce. So at one point, uh, Harding said that he was the smartest gink I ever knew. Um, and I had to look up what a gink was, and um, it was one of these terms that could, you know, if you used it with a certain um, inflection, it meant guy, and in other inflection, it sort of meant geek. Mm. Interesting. So yeah, there. I mean, I spent a lot of time just kind of digging into the OED and trying to track down what words meant at a particular point mm. um, in the past. Gink. It just it has it. Just by the sound of it, there is mm. something negative. You mm. gink. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's, it was sort of, <laughs> that sounds so. insulting indeed. Well, I think it's an interesting uh, in the sense that given that there's certain things we can say on the radio, mm-hmm. and that the list of those words is relatively recent, I'm just wondering whether there is sort of we can seek refuge in the past and find words that. F- sort of mean the equivalent, but actually wouldn't flag anybody's interest at the FCC. Yeah, well, one of the words that I, um, I'm i hoping to bring back is one that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, or, or Warren Taft used to refer to Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and it's an, it's an old term from the, um, really from the middle of the 18, 1800s, honeyfuggler. Um and it, it sounds dirty, so, um, so FCC, if you're listening, it doesn't mean what you might think it means. <laughs> what is G, honey and then F-U-G-G-L-E-R? Right, and, okay. um, which I guess is an old um, northern English term for a, um, um, a con man, a schmoozer. Mm. Um, so, if okay. the, so they were sort of accusing Teddy Roosevelt of um, honey-fuggling the voters, promising them things that they weren't going to get. 
but it's just such a great term, and everybody loves it. I like it. that. That's right. That's, a, that's really a great word. Yeah. I'm going to have hats made up, I think. <laughs> so, uh, but where where does your interest in words come from? Oh, you know, it's hard. I think I was just always interested in, in interesting words and, and the way that people use language to get things done. Mm -hmm. So the, the two parts of this book that really came together for me were um, you know, how people use words to position themselves socially and um, the, the sort of previous book I did on um, apologies. Mm -hmm. You know, apologies are sort of the opposite of insults. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always been interested in the history of words and, and where they come from and what they might have meant at an earlier time and which words go away and which words um, come into new currency. So it was a nice opportunity to bring those two things together. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in New Jersey, so I'm sort of an, uh, sort of an expert at being insulted. And <laughs> At being insulted, okay. so I, that was an important twist. Um, so, how do words morph? How do words change? I mean, I'm assuming that plenty of words that are just completely disappeared from common usage. Oh yeah, there are there are a bunch of great words that H. L. Mencken used to use, mm -hmm. Montebank and things like that, mm -hmm. that we just we just never use. Um, so something like honeyfuggler. I think mm -hmm. it, you know, it it had a certain currency. Um, it would it would come and go a little bit, but you could you could sort of imagine, you know, a word like fuggler sounds like um, yeah. some other word, mm -hmm. and when you get these these words that sound like something else that might be um, yeah. not used with your grandma, yeah. mm -hmm. um, then the words kind of get pushed out by other words. Okay. Um, one of the ones that I, I've sort of but also been interested in is tracking some of the um, the meta or the comparisons that people use. So you know the comparison with somebody like comparing a president to Hitler is relatively recent, right? Mm -hmm. Of course. In yeah. the um, in the nineteenth century, I mean, who do you imagine they would have compared presidents to? Ivan the Terrible. Uh, Ivan the Terrible doesn't actually come up, but um, okay. more sort of. Um, Western Kaiser, the Kaiser, yeah, the Caesar, yeah, Caesar, um, yeah, okay, um, Cromwell, mm. well, Napoleon, like in a negative way, in a negative way, yeah, huh. that someone, someone who sort of, you know, okay, well, I can see Napoleon in a negative way, it, you yeah, know, but, but also history. Cromwell? Cromwell and and okay. Caesar, mm -hmm. um, the early presidents were considered, um, you know, compared to Caesar and sort of usurpers that way and so on, mm -hmm. so. So, and then, but you know, when when uh, when there's the opportunity to compare presidents to Hitler, the uh, Caesar and Cromwell and Napoleon seem sort of you know kind of quaintly historical by yeah, comparison. Of course, yeah, that makes sense. So, are there words that you came across that used to have a different meaning in the past and they have now? Yeah, some of them are words that it, it's hard to sort of use on the air. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's but, not do that then. <laughs> but, but they do say, yeah, I, I don't want to... I mean, one of the difficulties of this was sort of curating the words so that I wasn't either too repetitive mm -hmm. um, but or, or um, just kind of... You don't want one or two particular words to become the whole focus of the um, everybody's attention. Yeah, so, of so there's a certain, oh, well, I could include that, 
but that's really a sort of you know nasty racist insult. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I, I did find was there were some things that I was surprised that were used so long ago. So Nammy Pammy Wishy Washy was huh? said of Lincoln. Wow. Um, by people who thought that he was not prosecuting the war vigorously enough. Um, so it's sort of the equivalent of uh, being a flip-flopper mm-hmm. right, in, yeah. in our day. Or wish, well, wishy-washy, meaning not, also yeah. just not really kind of blah. Yeah. <laughs> not much to him, you know. And, yeah. and I, spent a, I spent about a day tracking down uh, what I could of the etymology of wimp. Wimp? Wimp. Cause, okay. I mean, wimp comes, begins to be used with... Um, Presidents uh, uh, Carter and, of course, uh, George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. But it's got a sort of older history that goes back to kind of World War One, And I'm sure many listeners will remember the um, the character J. Wellington Wimpy from the Popeye cartoons. The, uh, wasn't he the one that ate burgers all He the would time? gladly pay you Tuesday for, for a hamburger, hamburger today. Hamburger today, right, right, right. sort of pseudo-intellectual there's con the, man. There's a whole chain of hamburger places in Europe, in, in the UK, That's, called Wimpy's. I think, I think they may have been here at one time, yeah? too. But yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. So it was a lot of fun to track these things down. I, I can imagine I had a, that. Um, yeah. A lot of work, but a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. had some, some great time with the OED and newspapers.com and just mm-hmm. digging into all sorts of... Uh, history book, and I was really astounded at how well historians write. I mean, I I skimmed through dozens and dozens of presidential histories, um, and I just sort of found myself marveling um, at the the quality of a lot of the writing. So okay. it was so good biographers, good right? biographers, yeah, mm-hmm. good. So, yeah. but uh, but I was going to ask you a little bit about the next well, Vermeulen. Let me just. Uh, Make a quick announcement here. You are listening to Literary Ashland uh, here on KSKQ 89.5 FM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And we don't have a guest today, but we're talking about uh, each other's books. That's right. Yeah. And so what's up with... uh Valentin Vermeulen in the next book. It's coming out, I think, in June? Yes, that's scheduled for June 10th, but I'm not holding my breath, but we'll see. <laughs> it, might, it might be later or so. I mean, it's, you know, it, it got a bit more complicated. Yeah, its title is Percentages of Guilt. Okay, so and he's an accountant, so that makes sense. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, it it comes from a particular argument he has with his daughter about meeting his ex-wife. And, oh, that kind of guilt. <laughs> yeah, and so his daughter keeps saying, "You should just meet her." And, you know, and she says, "I don't want to sit around divvying up, you know, the percentages of guilt as mm-hmm. to why we got divorced, right?" So, that's sort of was the inspiration for. So, the so this sounds like a certain amount of uh, Vermeulen backstory. Yes, it is interesting how it took fi- four novels to get me to the point of writing a novel where we really learn a whole lot more about the protagonist I've been shepherding around for four novels, yeah. It's in part, I mean, there there was a fundamental problem with the setup of the series. How, how so? Which means, he, you know, he is an investigator for an agency that the Office of Internal Oversight Services that has to ferret out fraud in the United Nations system. So in other words, 
it's always going to be in the end the same kind of crime that he investigates sort of financial chicanery yeah it's like somebody putting money in their own pocket somebody cheating somebody else you know inflating invoices whatever so in other words it gets to be repetitive after a while and so i decided that his shelf life is probably not like you know Jack Reacher's shelf lives, you know, right. 24 novels later, he's still kicking somebody's behind, you know. Um, Lots but, of little towns for Reacher to go to. Yes, but I, so was, I, was, I also wanted to explore other things. And so uh, in this novel, he is not on the United Nations case. In this novel, it's, it's really sort of a play on Faulkner saying the past is never past. It's, it's, it's not... It's, it's not it's a it's prologue, not, is it? It's not dead, it's not even past or something. The past is never dead, it's not even past. So he gets called back to Antwerp, where he used to be a prosecutor before he went to the United Nations, because there were serious irregularities with the last case that he was involved, that he oh, was involved okay. in. Mm-hmm. And... You know, apparently, this is where the fiction is just beautiful. You can just make this up because there's a paragraph 14 of his employment contract that requires him to show up and offer testimony whenever there are irregularities with former cases or old cases. So whether that exists, I don't know. I did actually interview, uh, talk to a professor at a University of Antwerp Law School because Belgian criminal law is really quite different from American. It's continental law. It's not the common law system. It's okay, uh, based so on the Napoleonic right. Code. So I had to figure out that certain things that you can do here, you can't do there. But in any case, so he's called back, and the moment he shows up, uh, he realizes this is not just a routine thing. Uh, in the last case that he was involved in, there was an informant, and that informant got killed. And the charge is that Vermeulen leaked the name to the mob so that he would get killed. Oh, okay. So the son is <clears throat> suing the department. And mm-hmm. the department, of course, is kind of like, we're trying to hold ourselves harmless. This is, let's just let's, let's pick, pick this guy, not us, right? That's right. So, so, and of course, he knows it's bogus. Uh, so he has to basically prove his innocence. And, and that means sort of reliving this old case and trying to remembering what he had to do and things like that. So there are two plots happening. One is the story in 2003, where we learn all about cocaine smuggling through the port of Antwerp mm-hmm. and him trying to figure out how does the money for the cocaine get back to the Colombian cartels? And the other story is... And the, the other story is the present-day story, two thousand, late right. 2015, him trying to hold himself harmless and, and prove that something else is going on. Uh, and okay. that whatever else is going on gets him basically into the crosshair between the old syndicate boss who he failed to nail 13 years earlier, the son of the informant, and a crooked judge who is behind everything. And and part of this, oh, you gave away the gave away the ending. Um, and part of this, I guess, explains why he became a UN investigator as uh, well. Is that part of the? That's part because I, I mentioned that he, he and his wife got a divorce because he got so wrapped up in this case that he was never home. You know, his daughter ran away, and 
became a drug addict, and so he had to kind of find her and yank her out of some squat in some shabby neighborhood. Yeah. And so I, I remember that's that's been uh, yeah that's come up in other books, but that, yeah, now we get the a whole story. Bit. Now there's the whole background story so we, yeah, as to why that happened so and so forth. Yeah, it goes so, from lawyer to investigator in this yeah. in this piece. Mm -hmm. This is so that's. Oh, that's good. This is a good. Yeah, so I haven't given away the end yet. Okay, except, right. You know, he's not dead yet. So, <laughs> so we and are there? Do you have more idea? More sort of Vermeulen adventures? Or you mentioned his shelf life was. Yeah, I my my current contract with my publisher is for. Uh, it was two three book contracts. Mm -hmm. So this one that is coming out in June is number five. And I am just about to finish the draft for number six. And number six, I think, is going to be it for a while. For Vermeulen. For, in the current incarnation. I've okay. written the last scene, which opens the possibility okay. so you that he might come back in a new way. Yeah, I, just, I mean, this is... I'm not trying to guess anything, but you, often <laughs> you have characters will, yeah. uh, you know, they'll... Get fired from one job and mm -hmm. uh, start up a new career as a yes, as some sort of private investigator. Or I'm thinking of uh, John Sanford's character, uh, the uh, uh, Lucas. Um, uh, oh yeah, and he's gone from being a Minneapolis cop to a, a state investigator to now working mm -hmm. for the uh, mm -hmm. marshal service and just sort of keeps yeah you know, changing territory yeah. so they can. Something like something that. like that. So something like I'm, that. I'm looking. I'm not, you know, Vermeulen has grown on me. I wasn't as the, the idea of a sort of accountant investigator <laughs> didn't really appeal to me at first, but um, he's he's really kind of uh, yeah, shown a resourceful side that it it and accountants don't call in. I'm just kidding. No, no. I mean, it's <laughs> funny because uh, I got a blurb from. Uh, Andy, oh, what's his name? Who wrote the book uh, "Reach Us at Nothing"? Oh uh, yeah, right. Uh, oh jeez, I should remember the guy his name. Yeah, shadowed. Anyways, uh, he 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 wrote this funny blurb for one of the books. It's like uh, I'm sorry, I'm not being very articulate. Who wrote the Da Vinci Code? I'm Dan Brown. Yeah, it's like Dan Brown, except with an accountant and a conscience. Oh right, that's. <laughs> I thought that was well, that, that's a, a good that was a that's a good blurb funny blurb yeah, yeah. Uh, right. so yeah I I think he, I wasn't quite sure how this would would unfold uh, this character but he's grown on me and that's why even though I understand that the current series can't really go past number six I I think he's gonna come back I don't know yet exact when exactly when but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of characters. Lucas Davenport mm -hmm. was the one I was mentioning before, but there, there are a lot of characters who go through yeah. several incarnations like exactly. this. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he'll he'll have a he have a more exciting, a more exciting incarnation, at yeah. some time in the future. But in the meantime, I I will finally get back to the book that I started in October. This is an Oregon book? Yeah, the, I the one that I started in October 2018. <laughs> well, it was in October. <laughs> so, uh, a long time ago, and it's I have about 8,000 words, and it's never got any further. So I'm looking forward to getting back and, to and that. And this one is set in eastern Oregon. Yes, it's correctly, set right? in 
Uh, it's tentatively entitled Calamity Lake. Oh, that's a good... Yeah, because, of course, the whole Malheur Lake is... Malheur is a French word for calamity, right? So, well, that's... And apparently there were two French trappers who got there and said, this day, this place is a disaster. Right. <laughs> and so they called it we'll just call Malheur it Lake. Disaster, disaster, Calamity Lake. Calamity um, Lake, yeah. so yeah. So that's what's up for me once okay. I'm done with the revisions on what I'm working on right now. And that title of the Six for Mulan book, have you got that? I yet? haven't yet? got a title yet. No, I mean it's right now. It's just called Desert because it's set in the desert of Arizona. Hmm. Well, it's set in Tucson and and at the border. It deals with the whole border problematic as it's going oh, okay. on. So See. it's very contemporary. It's set in 2018. Yeah, I, I think our friend yeah. Clive has already used Red Desert, so you mm -hmm. can't. Uh, yeah, so can't, I can't, can't use, use that, that one. Yeah. I, I um, I'm terrible with titles. Some. Some people I know are really great coming up with amazing titles, and I just am not. I, I know some people who they come up with the title first and then the book. Um, yeah, I can see that. Right? But I, I'm not that way. I come with the book up first, and then I'm thinking, geez, what am I going to call it? <laughs> what, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, you're listening to Literary Ashland um, uh, at KSKQ 89.5 FM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And so we have a few more minutes left here. Uh, what's well, up for you next? What's your next project? Yeah, you know, I, I have an idea for um, the, something I want to I call, um, what do I want to call it? I don't have the title yet, but... Um, Something about famous misunderstandings mm. and how um, language is not as transparent as we think it is. And even people that think that, oh, you know, if you just sort of got everybody speaking the same language, all our troubles would go away. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really not a realistic position. Um, so that I wanna... would be putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I haven't I haven't thought all the angles through yet, yeah. but yeah, the idea is to really look at um, how language doesn't how language gets in our way. Yeah. Uh, well, both of us have been in the classroom for quite some exactly. time, right? So I mean, we both know that we have no control over the meaning of our words, right? I mean, we may say something that sounds to us perfectly reasonable, but the students oftentimes like. What were we in the same room? Uh, did I? I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. So but yeah, the meaning of words. It's so I think that could be a mm -hmm. a, a nice uh, a nice thing to look at yeah. a little bit and mm -hmm. um, and I was going to ask you a little bit too about I mean what's been the most enjoyable thing for you in doing the whole Vermeulen series? I think the most enjoyable part of it were these moments when I thought, oh gosh, what's going to happen next? And then something unfolds. Oh yeah, I, you know, I should I should preface this by saying that except for the first book where I, you know, I completely rewrote an earlier draft and so I had basically a template and I had an outline already. All the other books were not outlined before I started writing. So I had maybe an opening scene, I had an idea and I had a character. And part of that process is sometimes arriving at places where you just say, oh, 
I've written myself into a corner, so to right. speak. So you wake up at three in the morning trying to figure out what you're yeah, going to do about something this. something like that. And then <laughs> suddenly understanding that unknown, unbeknownst to myself even, I had l dropped some crumbs earlier. I mean, to give you one example, in the Percentages of Guilt book, I just thought, well, you know, this is kind of a slow beginning, so I got to spice mm -hmm. it up a little bit. And so on three occasions when he comes back to his hotel, he finds an envelope with a photograph slipped off him, slipped under the door. You know, and for the longest time, I thought, man, I got to do something with that. <laughs> I, I, better, I, I have okay. to use that. And as the novel came to its conclusion, there it was. It made perfect sense. It fit into the plot. Okay, and that now was just like, I, I couldn't have... So you I put, put the breadcrumbs in there without knowing where they were going. And yeah, and I did. And that was just, that was sort of almost miraculous right. to me. So that those are really enjoyable moments. And some there are these days when it seems to flow really well. And then there are the other days when it seems like each word is a struggle. And that is not the enjoyable part, but getting back to it the next day and reading it and saying, man, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, I've been having uh, my, my students in a, in a um, sophomore class write sentences based on mm -hmm. other sentences. And just yesterday we were looking at one where the, um, the student had written that a particular character had bright eyes. And he, he stopped and said, well, I couldn't figure out what color the eyes should be so I just said they were bright, and then we had about a you know ten minute discussion in class about what color the eyes should be, mm -hmm. um, and what kind of character it would be depending on whether the eyes were blue or green or yeah. um, or so on. And it was really sort of fun to watch the the students go back and forth and you know decide whether um, the character would be a mutant if mm -hmm. uh, with one color eyes and yeah. a sort of you know, a, a spirit with a different color eyes. Um, so I, I know exactly yeah. what you mean, only that was a group project yeah. rather than right. all in your head. Well, folks out there, that about does it. We've come to the end of our show. And we'll uh, be back next month we'll on the next, fourth Friday. Next month on the fourth Friday, and we will have a guest then. Right. That's for sure. Okay. So, until then, good words to you and, and uh, read a book. Yeah, definitely. All right. Bye.